0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today, we have a fascinating conversation with Joanna Hutchins, an expert in brand growth and innovation with extensive experience across various product sectors of the China market. Joanna also serves as an adjunct professor at Duke University's China campus, and she has authored a new book titled Chinafi, Why China is Leading in Innovation and How the Rest of the World Can Catch Up. The book is scheduled to be released in March or April 2023, and will be available in stores in the US, UK, and Southeast Asia, as well as online globally. In our conversation with Joanna, we learn about the evolution of the Chinese market over the past two decades, and how major international organizations like Unilever have found success in the region. We also discuss Joanna's new book, which offers a deep dive into China's role in global innovation over the past decade. As an innovation expert, Joanna also highlights several emerging innovations expected to shape the Chinese Chinese market in the next five to ten years. We discuss the pace of innovation in China and the potential opportunities that exist for businesses to take advantage of this wave. Our conversation offers a compelling look into the role of China in global innovation and how businesses can navigate the ever-changing landscape of the Chinese market. Enjoy
1: even companies like Xiaomi, which have made basically cell phones, but also the internet of things, the IoT uh, home devices, incredibly accessible. And I believe brand owners really need to be thinking in, in reverse. As I know from my experience at Unilever, a lot of what we've been focused on is up trading. We've been focused on up consumer to the next level premium offer, but I think what people are missing is the bulk of consumers uh, that sit at the bottom of the pyramid and there's gold in that bottom of the pyramid.
0: brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Joanna, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Todd. It's great to be here. Thank you. As we usually do. Where are you currently in the world that you're recording from today?
1: So I'm currently in Singapore. You mentioned uh, the new book that I've written and my publishers are here in Singapore. The book's launching very soon. And so we're, I'm here meeting with them and talking about that, which I have the luxury to do now that China has opened the borders and allowed for travel. So.
0: That's right. So we're recording this in February and we will be releasing this right around your book launch to try and coincide with that. Kudos and congratulations on that. By the way, I can only imagine how much work and I'm sure you're in just in those final throws of uh, putting all the finishing touches on that release right now.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's been quite a quite a journey.
0: (laughs) I can only imagine. I've never written a book, but having even just done this podcast for four years, I can only imagine how much work goes into that. So let's start with, uh, if if you don't mind, maybe I could ask you to give a quick introduction into yourself and the work that you do.
1: So today I'm working as a fractional CMO, which is mainly with small to medium-sized businesses helping them scale and grow um, and also innovate to address the markets and the needs of the markets that that they play in. Uh, And what I found really useful because I I do come from a a large corporate background and I suppose we'll talk about that a bit more. Um, And I've spent a lot of time in China. I'm using a lot of the China growth principles to help companies overseas use the same principles that Chinese businesses are using to scale and grow, to grow their businesses in other countries. So it's it's almost to some degree taking the China insight and extrapolating that and using it uh, to drive exponential growth for other businesses in the world.
0: As somebody myself from venture capital and from tech and working with startups a lot, I, I understand what the term fractional means when it comes to CMO or CTO or such. Could you maybe just explain a little bit about what that... Fractional CMO means in relation to being a full time CMO.
1: Sure, I mean, in essentially, and its most basic sense, it's part time. But really, what it means um, for the businesses is uh, that they get senior level experience. Um, you know, someone with who, who operates at a C suite level, but they engage with them for a fraction of their time. Um, and this, off, this takes shape in different ways. Sometimes, um, you know, you might work a certain number of days in the week or a certain number of hours, or you might engage in a very strategic, you know, upstream kind of, uh, let's define the mark, you know, how we're going to grow, how the business objectives translate into marketing objectives. So it can be things like that, but basically it's for businesses that aren't in a position to hire a full-time CEO or a CMO rather. Um, but need that level of, guidance, that level of expertise um, to bring into the business to help shape and steer their, their marketing and strategy activities.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, I think it's also tenure with the company as well. So it might be, I need somebody exemplary. I need an A player mm. for two days a week for two years, Yeah, you know, to, to really help position us and, and grow awareness or, or whatever kind of the, the scope is. But you know, again, resource cons- constrained type uh, companies are one, but also ones that have a very particular need. They they need the best, but they can't, they really don't have even, an, you know, maybe enough work or enough capacity or what have you. As we start to to get innovative with the type of roles that people like yourself can have, it opens up a lot of opportunities for you to get very specific and really kind of hone in on that one particular role, right?
1: Absolutely, and and I think you're right in the sense that you know you talk about the two different sort of use cases um, for, for for fractional executives, and I, I think that's exactly right. I do find it tends to be businesses that um, either you know the the, the idea uh, is there and they've demonstrated you know proof of principle, but uh, they don't necessarily know how to scale consumer adoption, for example. Um, and that's where, you know, marketing SEMO can come in. Um, so it tends, I find it tends to be businesses on the smaller side or either businesses of a medium size who have reached a, had hit a growth spurt, but now have reached a bit of a plateau and need to figure out what to do to push things to the next level. So it's super interesting because, you know, I come from a mixed background of big corporate and small business and, and startup. And quite a lot of... Um, quite a, There's a, a lot of exchange in those principles in terms of best practice. But in other ways, you're also building the car as you're driving it, which is very China, right? So you're sort of figuring thing at, things out as you go and leveraging your expertise and your knowledge. And, you know, If you've seen something a million times, you know instantly... You know, as an experienced executive, whether you're a fractional CMO or fractional CFO, you know, you know, you know how to guide and steer the team at that particular point in their growth.
0: Yeah. And I, I've seen that result come to fruition in a couple of different ways. It can be founder led where it's a founder relationship that engages that. But I've also seen that from the institutional VC side mm. where I've seen Sequoia say, we will give you $5 million but part of what you're going to do with it is that we're going to take our friend who had spent five years at YouTube and we're going to plant her in your company one day a week. And you're going to pay her, you know, $50,000 a month for a year to do this one particular thing. And we're going to make that uh, a part of the deal. Yes. And so I, I, I've seen it come in different ways. So now let's let's go back into your history a little bit. and And I want to ask, how did you end up in that area of the world to begin with?
1: Well, I, I'm originally from the U.S. and I was working in advertising for about ten years in New York. And then I decided I wanted to go what we say in our, what we say in that part of the world. We go client side because I really wanted to own brands, drive business, and the marketing advertising uh, side was just one one little piece of the pie. So I ended up joining Unilever. Um, I was in the U.S. and this was at the time of uh, brick expansion. So, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China expansion, all, all large companies had a major brick push and I got on that track. Um, I spent some time in Brazil uh, evaluating the market to, you know, to launch some of the, the brands of Unilever. I spent some time in Moscow to do the same for Russia, um, but eventually I moved to Asia because that was where the, for me, at least in my judgment, the most exciting growth potential existed. So um, I remember sitting, I do remember sitting in a meeting um, in Europe. We were having a global brand leaders meeting and the, uh, the head of our division at the time put up a slide in the room and it literally showed, because the Unilever's business is denominated in Euro, so it showed it had an animation of Euro signs flying from North America and Europe and flying to Asia on the animation. And I thought at that point, at that very moment, I was like, okay, I'm going to follow the money. So um, so I started you know putting myself forward for jobs in Asia and ended up spending uh, with what has been not like the last 16, 17 years of my career in Asia and 13 of it in China.
0: Wow. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about that, that work that you've done with Unilever. And I want to start that conversation talking about maybe the early days when you arrived and, and the brand suite of Unilever and the products and your sense of how they were perceived and, and, and received inside market, in market in China at the very beginning. And then how they are received. Used marketed today, and I'm asking this full disclosure because I believe a lot of domestic homegrown Chinese brands have really come a long way. Mm. So maybe the if you could infuse into that that answer how some of the mechanisms that have changed the growth or the uh, market share of the brands or the reception of the brands has changed due to some of the influences of the quality growth of local homegrown brands in China?
1: When I started working with China, um, and in China, it was the early 2000s, and Unilever had been there in a joint venture capacity, and we were just in the midst of taking that back, Um, buying buying out and becoming a wholly owned operating company in China. And the landscape for consumers was nascent. somewhere around the mid 2000s, I think it was around 2000, 2008, there was the melamine milk scare, which kind of changed everything for for brands and international brands. And I'll talk, I'll tell you what, what that was. So there was a local Chinese uh, dairy company that put um, melamine, a chemical compound in, in milk to, bruise, to boost the protein profile of the product. Um, and it had the impact of... Uh, I think about I think it was six children dying and about three hundred thousand consumers becoming ill from from poisoning from the product, uh, and that was a local brand and it had a huge impact on consumer trust and what that meant. Um, at that, you know, already, I think before that, consumers were curious about international brands because China had opened up. They were starting to see these, you know, things like L'Oreal, French cosmetics. They were starting to see things like laundry detergent, you know, which were new products and that, you know, people had never used a liquid laundry detergent and, you know, or ever seen it or heard of it in their lives. And so these products were curiosities. And I think people were buying them out of curiosity, but it wasn't until... Um, I think that very moment where consumers really started to worry about the quality of local products. Um, And they started to put a lot of trust in international companies because of investments in R and D investments in safety and investments in quality. And that started the real international product consumer group that the huge amount of growth that happened over the next, I'd say 10 years. So from like 2007 to 2017 or 18 was, I would say the era of multinational consumer brands being hugely dominant um, in the growth profile of all consumer goods in China, and it was really down to trust. Um, and in fact, uh, in Asia in general, but in China specifically, uh, you know, when you think about the Unilever brands, we've, you know, let's say I, I worked in personal care, so we we had Dove, um, Ponds, Axe. Uh, You know, in laundry detergent, there's Omo, which is, uh, you know, surf in some other countries. And there's uh, Lipton Tea, um, a lot of the different products that were out there. Um, In other markets like Europe and the U.S., there was a growing distrust of these massive conglomerates. And so Unilever was a brand that was... As, as a company was minimized, you know, they wanted consumers to think that the brands were independent or they didn't want them to necessarily realize they were part of a larger holding company. So for example, in the U S where I worked originally, you know, there was no Unilever branding, but in Asia, Unilever branding was huge because it was a quality stamp, a sign of quality. And so a lot of the products were marketed under the big multinational, uh, umbrella, and this was the same for p and g or Colgate Palmolive or any of the big consumer product companies the brand the individual brands were important, but also the corporate master brand was hugely hugely important in marketing um, and it was really down to trust and quality and so to segue to where we are now, um, the quality cons- at, during this time Chinese brands were quietly growing, so the multinationals were capturing a lot of Market share um, and really gaining a lot of consumer trust, but are based on the fact that it was pre existing the consumer trust. But what happened in the meantime was culturally a surge in China pride, the economy was growing, education was improving, you know, lots of dimensions of quality of life in China were improving, and the younger generation was developing a real sense of pride, you know, whereas. Previously, maybe they felt a bit behind other countries in the world stage. They started to feel equal to other countries and economies on the world stage. And this really impacted the consumer context because they started to believe that Chinese brands could be as, you know, they started to discover that they were as good as international brands. They could be as good as and potentially even better suited for local consumers' needs So it's almost like um, I feel like today it's almost like the the multinational consumer brands are on the off ramp in the Chinese consciousness and the Chinese brands are on the on ramp um, of the Chinese consciousness. And so these big multinationals are really under threat in China and I think struggle to compete with the attractiveness and the relevancy of local Chinese brands.
0: I remember how big Dove was. It was, it was everywhere, you know. And and somebody who you know, when I went there, I wasn't in the game of any game, so to speak. I was kind of just traveling around in 2007, and even somebody not in the vertical, I really noticed. I was like, wow, like Dove is a known brand back home, but it is. Everywhere mm-hmm. here. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So they had done a really, really good job. You were also a pioneer of e commerce uh, for Unilever. So I would like maybe to first ask you to, you know, I'm, I'm getting you to be a bit of a historian here at times, but talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like. For those who don't know, back in the beginning of the internet and digital kind of commerce days in China, say 2010, 2012.
1: Right. So it, it was interesting because e-commerce, um, you know, t- China's the largest market for e-commerce in the world and 80% of consumer goods are bought on e-commerce in China, um, which is just mind blowing to anybody from any other country. But in 2010 it, it was zero, you know, zero percent really. And, and U S already had, uh, Things like Amazon, Amazon had a global presence. You know, China was decidedly behind. Um, but what was interesting about e-commerce is that you know, based on the based on the growth potential you saw in other large markets, you knew it was going to be a fundamental channel. Um, the question was how to participate, and so you know, at first it was a bit confusing for marketers in China who. Um, were used to doing, I would say, you know, selling pallets of products uh, through distributors to retailers. Um, And here you had to, you know, you had to set up a store, your own store typically. Um, And I'll back up for a second to explain what I mean by store. So first it was Alibaba, which was B2B sales. Then Taobao came um, around, I think, 2009. And that was typically... um, uh, businesses to consumer. Um, but it was sort of more independent businesses than Tmall came, which was branded companies. Um, and there was a quality assurance with Tmall, you know, you were buying direct from the manufacturer. Um, whereas on Taobao you, at that time you were never really sure, um, you know, if the product was exactly what you, you know, what you thought you were buying. Um, so Unilever entered into Tmall as did many other brands. Um, with the Unilever store selling, you know, under their umbrella, all the products as did L'Oreal, as did P&G. Uh, the biggest problem at the time was, and I, I was working, um, like I said, in personal care and skincare, you know, we, we were selling products. I'll, I'll use U.S. dollars for reference. We were using products that were selling for maybe like $1.50, $2 U.S. Um, like a tube of toothpaste or a skin cleanser. Um, and actually fulfilling that order costs more than the product itself um, so for a period of time as we were experimenting with e-commerce uh, Unilever and no one else was making money but it was about piloting and trying and figuring out how to make it work because knowing that this was going to be a big channel in the future um, we needed how we needed to understand um, the the economics of it and how to scale it but I think that what really, where we really cracked the code was realizing at some point, it wasn't necessarily about solving this problem of, you know, how to, how to fulfill the order for the two US dollar product. What the potential of e-commerce was, was to enter second, third, and fourth tier cities without investing in distribution. So what fundamentally transformed our thinking around e-commerce was um most most multinationals were in first tier cities. And but when I say first tier cities, just to be clear, we're talking, you know, like Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, Chongqing, those cities um were well covered with international by international companies with distributors, and products were readily available. But tier two smaller cities, tier three, we're getting into more rural communities and tier four villages. Um there was a big expansion obstacle, which was how to uh, ship the products there. You know, land uh, land logistics. There was a big uh, challenge around distribution. Uh, there were no retail chains per se, so it wasn't as if you could go to, let's say, a Walmart and say, "We want to be in your other cities." Um, the retailers were very local, so from a sales point of view, it. Developing those relationships would have been time consuming, cost prohibitive, uh, you know, having individual relationships with individual store owners. Um, We just, you know, even a company the size of Unilever didn't have enough staff to cover that kind of investment in time and energy. So e commerce became a shortcut for distribution for all these companies. So you no longer needed to worry about stores. Uh, shipping a supply chain and logistics of getting pallets of product to retailers or negotiating individual contracts with retailers. You actually just could ship directly to consumers. So and this unlocked, it became a virtuous circle because it unlocked the potential for companies with these consumers. It unlocked the potential for these consumers who were earning more money and leading middle-class lifestyles to have access to products they previously didn't have access to. And it just flourished off, off the back of, of that kind of value exchange between company and consumer.
0: How amazing. <laughs> I get, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the answer. What are your thoughts and your opinion, not mine, on the logistics and transportation that China has really invested in? And, you know, what we have known, even from five years ago, about how that has in my opinion, just really enabled e-commerce to completely boom. And like you said, be 80% of how shoppers buy today.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I write about some of this in my book. And I think one of the things China's particularly good at is enabling innovations, right, um, that help the larger platform scale. So one of those able, Correct, enabling, yes. one of those enabling innovations is the delivery system that that has developed. Um, I find so I've been in China for the last three years during the pandemic and unable to travel. so um, to some degree, I had a bit of reverse culture shock when I went to see my family in December for Christmas for the first time, um, realizing that you know even Amazon prime is two days and um, and I'm used to ordering, I'm used to ordering something yeah. and getting it, and any anything, anything I can possibly imagine. You're a lead
0: time snob now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, if you're um, – if literally, I mean, the delivery is real time. Obviously, there's autonomous delivery in China, which people don't really understand. That's a whole new frontier of um, vehicles and neighborhoods. So, you know, if you run out of diapers in the middle of the night, you don't have to go anywhere. You just – in 10 minutes, you can have a, a package of diapers at, at your door. I mean, it's incredible. And this is where I think a lot of countries sort of miss out on it. There's there's a lot of focus on the upstream kind of um, innovations, you know, digital platform, like we're building a platform for e-commerce, we're building a platform for social commerce. But th- those are only as a, effective as enabling infrastructure around the logistics that Support them. And that's where China's really focused and made a huge point of difference. And so when I see things like, you know, Pinduoduo launching uh, Timu in the US, with, you know, sort of their challenge to Amazon.com, um, I'm thinking to myself, knowing what they know about logistics in China, if people are saying, oh, uh, you know, people don't want to buy it, and perhaps people don't want to buy, um, lower priced products. Um, and I'm thinking it's you're missing the point, not only do people want lower priced products because we're in the middle of an inflationary crisis in the U S but they also will be charmed and amazed by the customer service and the experience of having products come to them in a relatively, um, you know, as real time as it can be considering the the current um, infrastructure in the U.S. And what those companies will do is they will innovate in spaces, uh, these enabling innovations that make them more successful, I do believe, than their, the other competitors.
0: Kind of leading off of that, uh, there was one question I wanted to maybe close out specifically talking about Unilever was just your thoughts on what is it about Unilever that allows them to be so effective and be so innovative for so long?
1: You know, it's an interesting question because I think some some people would even challenge the question.
0: Yeah, fair point.
1: If you look at Unilever stock price, uh, they hit a high in 2019 and have been on a downward trajectory. But unlike P&G or L'Oreal, who who've hit a peak in 2022, so there's something. Um, it's an interesting time. Um, For these large multinational consumer companies, I think they're under threat by all the startups, not just in China, all the disrupt the brand disruptors, the direct to consumer products that are coming in. Um, And I and I do do think that they're going to have to innovate in ways that perhaps their skill sets don't allow them to currently. So they're going to have to really think through what the business model is moving forward and how to engage consumers who are attracted to smaller, younger consumers, especially who are attracted to smaller, more human, more local brands. However, that said, to your question, I think how Unilever has been successful in the past is really looking to each market about the specific needs. So. one of the key things I noticed when working with them during the brick expansion time was the willingness to adapt the portfolio and adapt products and develop specific products for specific countries uh, to better meet consumers needs. So I think as a company, they're, they're incredibly consumer focused. I do think the problem is though moving forward is that because they're a global company with a footprint in so many places, um, that hyper localization is unachievable. And that's where these smaller, uh, more, let's say, indie disruptive brands are really, you know, any, any one of those brands might not climb to a certain height, but let's say dozens of them are in the process of chipping away at. Companies like P&G and Unilever and L'Oreal, for example, in some of those categories that I'm very familiar with, like BD and personal care.
0: As we were you know, looking into your, your background and, and understanding you better to put together some of the topics that we wanted to discuss for the, for the podcast, we came across elements of design being very important in your career. I wanted to ask you to speak to the intersection of design into in, and, and its impact on business growth, and then also the importance of really great design when it comes to the China market.
1: So I think, I mean, design is more of a servant, and I would say the master is the brand. So what I mean by that is um, design is a very important mechanism to express what you want to express about a brand, you know creating points of differentiation, creating something that's sort of magnetically attractive to consumers, creating uh, something that's recognizable. So if you think about um, design, it's an important tool. Um, And even more now, even more so now experience design is usually important. You know, how, how, brands create experiences beyond the product, how you discover the product, you know, how um, the moment of not just the moment of purchase, but the experience of using it. Um, so many people don't encounter products in the same way that they used to. You know, uh, if you think about consumer products, China case in point, that's 80% of consumer products sold online. I mean, people aren't going to the shelf anymore and they're not sort of standing their face with 10 options and, and, Picking one because it attract, you know, because something about the design attracts them. You have to design in different ways for in use. So, um, a lot of what creates brand differentiation, in my opinion, and makes brands stand out, is design and design of the product, design of the user experience, um, and just going back to Unilever. If you think about Unilever, I mean, fundamentally, the vast majority of products Unilever sells are commodity products, right? It's like soaps for hair, soaps for body, soaps for face, soaps for laundry, soaps for the kitchen, soaps for the bathroom. I mean, they are commodity products, but what ma- what makes them different are the brands that they create and design as a fundamental part of creating an attractive brand that consumers want and want to keep buying. Um, to get to your point about China, I think Chinese consumers probably rate design and purchase decision more highly than consumers in other countries. Um, they're more attracted to uh bold, fresh, fun uh expressions. Um, and they tend to choose those, uh they tend to choose products often, I mean, often based on appearance, but um they're also much more permissive of design leaps. So, for example, that's why, like, collab- brand collaborations, um, you see things like the most recent, th- you know, Coach and White Rabbit coming together for Chinese New Year. I mean, a, a dime store candy and a, you know, a luxury brand. Um, in the US, those kinds of collaborations aren't as permissible as they are in China, but it gives Coach an opportunity to design. Something, um, and express themselves in quite a unique way, but still in character of their brand. And you see that with things like KFC and Karl Lagerfeld in China, which, you know, the opposite end of things. So KFC partnering with Karl Lagerfeld and designing, you know, the, the bucket for the fried chicken. And so all these sorts of, Chinese consumers crave variety; they crave novelty. They're much more, I think, like greedy in that sense. They just want something fresh and new and fun all the time. And design is a is a real element of that for the Chinese consumer, probably more so than um, than in other countries.
0: Okay, I could see it in the future. Maybe a a Yeti designed KFC (laughs) bucket of chicken. Uh, (laughs) Are there some international companies that you might? point to be willing to point to who you think and just call them out some whose design is particularly effective in China or that you're just kind of in love with right now
1: I mean I mentioned the coach white rabbit collaboration I think that I think some of the yeah. collaborations are really interesting um on the, in the luxury space Prada did a vegetable wet market takeovers designing uh those I think that was in 2021 2020- so, yeah, it was twenty. It was either late twenty twenty one or early twenty twenty two before all the, the the um the lockdown started. So it was, and it was a really fresh, innovative way to engage consumers with product design, but in an unexpected kind of place. Mm-hmm. So I think I think luxury brands are doing super interesting things in China. They're being very experimental, and they're capturing attention um, in ways that. Uh, maybe in in other countries is sort of hard to imagine but on the consumer side um the more everyday products i think pepsi is doing really great work they've been customized they have a lot of own brands in china not just the the global ones but they're doing a really good job customizing the product limited editions different designs um really mining local insight and what's interesting, mm. I think, is that um, Pepsi, as a company, like a lot of companies, have stopped using agencies and they brought it all in-house. And they really allow—they have a team that they allow to play um, and create. And then, because the barrier to entry is relatively small, they can throw it up on e-commerce, see if it does well. If it doesn't, no, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, and yeah. they become incredi- Pepsi's become incredibly agile using design as a brand lever
0: in China. You led right into what I wanted to maybe call out next was in your opinion, could you say that for a lot of brands, maybe China is the most effective sandbox in the world right now to go play in to really kind of flex your, your design muscles and really try out some new stuff.
1: I think that's absolutely true. I mean, when I came to China with Unilever some years ago, they had moved the global R&D center for skincare to to China because one of the things that we found was if we developed things in Europe or the U.S. and sent them to China, the hit rate was it was hit or miss. Like the win rate was sort of unpredictable, but if the things we developed in China and exported always did fairly well um and that was and that was you know 15 years ago right so today i think what's really interesting for brands and businesses is um using china as an experimental playground because chinese consumers um they are notoriously fickle but when something grabs their attention it explodes um so, and they're very permissive so for example they give brands and businesses a lot of leeway to try new things. They don't penalize them if, it's, if it doesn't make sense or if it fails. There's no sort of like penalty, like, what are they doing? I don't understand them. I'm not going to buy them anymore. Like you might see in, in North American markets, for example. So brands and businesses, it's a great incubator, I think China, to explore different innovations, different products, different brand expressions. And, and there's really no consumer penalty for failure.
0: Low penalty cost, I think not like it used to be, but lower cost to, to innovate and, and you can do it faster. Getting higher quality data and feedback loop timeline, just a lot of little things that I think in aggregate make up a really big part of, of the decision to actually go and do things there. I, I think it is a market the up and to the right of where Chinese consumers are placing on having influence and potentially global influence. This is a place that I think more brands do want to go and play because the learning will be usable across multiple, even globally. Agree hundred percent. Okay. All right. We'll pin in that because we need to get to talking about your book, Chinafy. Why China is Leading in Innovation and How the Rest of the World Can Catch Up. Outside of the title that tells us some, I would like you to tell us more about what is this book about and why did you write it?
1: So I did um, in 2019, I decided to do, um, I decided I wanted to study innovation. I'd been in China for a while, um, practicing innovation and I saw a lot of what was happening in Silicon Valley, and I saw a lot of what was happening you know in Europe. and I felt um, or wondered if I was missing a beat. Um, so I decided to study to go and pursue a degree in innovation and do that sort of an executive program like keep working in China, but go periodically to study and do that. So I ended up going to um, Oxford university and went to their Said business school and doing a, a degree in strategy and innovation and much to my surprise um, in my studies there over the next 18 months, I felt like the China was ahead. So I, so I went with the impetus thinking that perhaps we were just doing things fast, cheap, you know, agile, and perhaps there was something more substantial to be learned and gathered outside of China. But when I got there, what I realized is that um, there were no new ideas. They were just sort of reshaping existing propositions. But, you know, so the shared economy, like how can we manipulate that in this sector or that sector? And and there was nothing really happening that was as interesting as what was happening in China and that the substance behind those things, um, to some degree, now we see some things have failed, uh, you know, or, or have been challenged. Like, so we work this as And some of the, some of the things at that time that were really huge, um, were lacking the material substance and operational excellence behind them to drive outcomes. Right. Um, so I walked away from that degree feeling like China's ahead and and I had to write a thesis and so I wrote my thesis on that. Um and my thesis in fact uh, the title was it's time to start copying China which was a bit of like putting a play on yeah.
0: um, little tongue in cheek, yeah.
1: Little tongue in cheek. Which my pup which I wanted to call the book, but the publisher said that might be a little too in your face. So we, we have a different title. <laughs> but um but but that was the point. And I said, you know, maybe it's time to start copying China because when I look at what the West is doing, it's it's not that it's not interesting. It's just that it's not driving as much commercial impact um, as what's happening in China. So China, I feel like China's really driving the global economy. These things are interesting. But China's perhaps ahead, and so the book came to be from my studies and my thesis. Which then my professors later said, "You know, this is um, this is an interesting topic. You should really consider turning it into a business book." So that's what I did.
0: Let's talk about some of the examples of of how we, you know, and and how you've researched and unearthed and potentially written about. And I I, I don't necessarily want you to you know, give away all the secrets in the book. We'll save those for, for people to go and read for themselves. But some concrete examples maybe around how China has really out-innovated the West.
1: I mean, I think I mentioned I, I visited my family in uh, in the U.S. in December for Christmas. Christmas. and I, Yeah, and I ended yeah. up having some conversations with different business leaders, friends, peers in different industries. Um, and I was, some of the companies and examples of innovation that are really on a global scale in China, I was really surprised that they were unaware of. Um, And so, you know, what I uncovered in my research, I mean, the the principles of the book, which which I won't give, you know, like you said, I won't give away um, because I'd like for people to read it and discover it themselves is It's eight catalysts, uh, repeatable models from China that can, you know, once you extrapolate the size of the population, um, you know, because people have a lot of arguments about like, oh, well, of course, things are growing in China because they have a captive population of so many people. They have limited competition because, you know, especially in the digital
0: space, because better AI because they just have more data.
1: Yeah, exactly. So so, so once you sort of strip away all those as much as possible, there are actually things that are completely repeatable. There are behaviors, principles. I've hinted at one of them, which is really getting down to operational excellence and innovation at the operating level to actually make the products and services or platforms work. Um, That's one area. And so, so the book really digs into that. And there are companies, like I said, I was speaking to people in the US that they've never heard of, but that are definitely going to be world dominant brands. Like, I, So the, the book itself breaks down the principles and then it goes into case studies of Chinese businesses that are doing this successfully and how they're doing it. So it's really backed up by very detailed case studies. Um, and some of the companies I've written about, like BYD, um, I was talking to some people in the U.S. about BYD. They'd never heard of it. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about, in case you know, the listeners haven't as well, I'll talk a little bit about BYD. So BYD is a company that started um, in the like around 2007, 2008. I'm not sure the exact date, but around that time. Um, I mean, there were about 20 people. The, the area that they were playing in was rechargeable batteries for mobile phones. Um, and they became over, you know, a rechargeable battery, battery company. They eventually got into bigger batteries and, uh, got into electric buses. Um, as of 2019, they were, they owned 80% of the electric bus market globally. So if you've been on an electric bus, you've ridden in a BYD and you didn't even know it. Um, it's. They've quietly innovated in spaces that are sort of unrecognizable, like like electric buses, um, monorails, this kind of thing. And they finally decided to get into... I mean, nobody looks at the brand of monorail that you're on right when you're on an airport shuttle between one terminal to the next or, or in a tourist attraction. Um, but now they're in electric vehicles and cars uh, priced at about 15000 US dollars. So very entry level pricing. They're expanding globally. Um, I believe they're going to be the world. I mean, well, they are now actually by volume of manufacture based on the markets that they're in, which is largely China. But nobody's been able to produce a car at the price point that they've been able to produce with really advanced features. Like they have a self parking feature. You can if you if you want to park in a tight space, you can get out of the car and let it park itself. You don't need clearance for the door. Um, you know, it's got air pollution controls and filters in the vehicle. And and this is for $15,000, you know, which is a fraction yeah. of the price of a Tesla.
0: They're backed by a relatively well-known American investor as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, Warren Buffett, he put in, what was it? I'm, I'm looking at my notes because I have the number Cause I find this super interesting. And uh, 2008, Two thousand eight, he invested two hundred and thirty-two million, which today mm-hmm. that investment is worth seven point seven billion
0: U.S. Not a bad return.
1: Not a bad return.
0: <laughs> and what does BYD stand for? Uh, build your dreams. Build your dreams. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how a name like that it would fly in in North America. Um, I think f- people would find that just to be a little bit hokey, but in China, I think it's that, that is part of the, uh, kind of colloquial nature Mm. of, of, of China as well. Right. And, uh, they love that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's sort of come to symbolize the, the China dream in a way. Um, so it's super, super interesting company, as you mentioned, Warren Buffett's invested in, he's got more invested in BYD than he does in GM. Um, which sort of says something about where he's placing his bets. Um, it's now in the world's top 150 most valuable companies, of, you know, in the world, and they're pursuing global expansion. So, as countries, um, you know, in Europe or the U.S., want to uh, get on board with this shift to electric vehicles, and you think about how to enable and make that happen, the biggest issue is around you know, availability at certain price points right now. um, I mean, you you know, obviously there's things like the Toyota Prius and other hybrids, but this, this company and their offer will be the most effective tool for countries and societies to move and go electric as cities in China have done. Shenzhen where BYD is based hundred percent electric, all the taxis, all the public transport, all the passenger vehicles, um, are now hundred percent electric. And so these kinds of companies and ha- like what they're doing to achieve this. So the notion of like, how do you make a car with that many functions? And, um, that level of performance at $15,000 is something that China has excelled in and that the rest of the world needs to learn from to be competitive, because if they don't um that's why i'm saying you know to some degree that's why i'm saying it's time to start copying china because if you don't really understand how a company like that can make a product like that you can't compete
0: is there a cultural barrier though and maybe cultural isn't the right word i mean china was able to advance so quickly because they had no ego they really had no pride and they weren't going to be holding on to it. they just simply knew hey right now learning from the others is probably going to help us grow and learn and innovate faster. So let's do that. I think that it's going to be harder to turn the table and go the other way because I think that we have some ingrained inhibitions or, or blind spots from the West, call it ego, call it pride, call it ignorance, where they're going to blow by us and we may say, oh, yeah, no, that didn't happen.
1: I think that's, I think, I mean, that's as, you know, as I was talking to publishers about the book, some of them were saying to me, it's a really interesting book, but um, we're not sure anybody wants to buy a book about how China's doing better. (laughs) Yes. You know, and and that was a challenge. Um, Maybe that's why my publishers in Singapore. (laughs) Don't be
0: waking people up, Joanna.
1: (laughs) But, um, but I, but I think that's exactly right. There's, there's, you know, conscious or unconscious bias around, um, you know, how China's doing, what they've contributed. There's definitely, you know, people have their um, the, the perspectives around, you know, past issues and challenges around IP theft. And I, I think the thing that I really want to point out is that, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into that space and those challenges. But what I want to say to people is you can hold two truths in your hand at the same time they're not mutually exclusive which is there may have been issues with ip theft and and or china copying and all all the criticisms that you know we're not going to to defend those but what i'm saying is that could have been happening and china could have been innovating at the same time and you need to hold be able to hold two truths in your hand to really understand china you need to be able to sort of put that put whatever concerns Questions, politics you have to the side. And really, if you're in business and you're not looking at what China's doing to scale innovations, the same innovations, by the way. So, like if you look at digital uh, payments, launched the same year in China and the US. And now digital payments, you know, in China's 90% of consumers use them. And like Apple, I think Apple pay only 24% of Apple iPhone users use Apple Pay. Um, you know, as of, I think I, I have some numbers that I wrote down about this. As of, um, yeah, as of 2019, uh, cashless payments in China were $54 trillion, the same period in the US, $98 billion, right? So they've been able to take the same technologies, regardless of where they came from, and, and scale them and grow them bigger. And I think if you're going to, if you're competing in business and you're, Competing in global business, you're absolutely remiss to ignore China. You know, there's there are countries have their own conversations going on with China about trade um, and exchange. But as a business owner, a business leader, China is your competitor. And I mentioned earlier the Duo launching the the Timu. You know, in the U.S., trying to give um, Amazon.com a run for their money. I mean, this is very real, and so. You're going to face Chinese businesses either in your own market, not necessarily, you know, not necessarily, you know, or abroad in China, but you're going to be facing them. So whether you're interested in competing or, or China in China or not, Chinese businesses are interested in competing with you. So to understand how they work, how they operate, how they grow, how they scale is fundamental. And I really believe, um, you know, if you put ego and bias, and maybe some degree of um, you know, because if you look at the U.S., there is a lot of there is a lot of um, confidence around historical performance, around um, you know what's been achieved in the past, around the innovations of Silicon Valley, and none of that is unfounded. However, it limits sometimes your ability to see with perspective other amazing successes that are worth a closer look.
0: When people would ask me in the past, because I, 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 my background is tech and innovation from, from a bit of a VC side, I always want to talk about you know, the, the, this, this copying in, in China. And I said, well, first of all, I wouldn't say, and they don't consider it copying. They're simply just localizing. And they, uh, they don't have any issue with that type of behavior. Only you do. Yeah, and it, it's a little bit of a contentious statement. I'm being a bit of an antagonist, but what I'm trying to say is that they don't have. Let's go back and be a historian in the rule of law and the you know the litigious culture that you take for granted and think that that is how the rest of the world should act, and it's not necessarily true. And they have come and developed through a completely different type of culture. It's very much what you would consider to be the wild, wild east in, in nature, and it's dog-eat-dog and all the rest. And what you consider copying, they just consider to be smart business. And I don't think either are wrong.
1: No, I don't either. But, you know, even even with, with all, you know, even the difference of perspective in that, if you look at something like electric vehicles, which we just talked about with BYD, You know, Tesla's, um, a lot of Tesla's engine, you know, all the the inner working components of a Tesla, it's open source, right? So Elon Musk made it open source because he wanted to proliferate electric vehicles. It was more of a social mission than a, you know, in that regard, um, in addition to the commercial mission he had for the business. Um, So when presented with the same uh, starting point, Chinese businesses tend to make more of it so look at BYD um, you know for example compared to Tesla I mean they they, I, I don't know the um, actual volume of sales but I know they're they're multiple times larger than Tesla in terms of volumes of volume of sales um, and value as well but volumes huge so even if you know even if there's different perspectives on is it copying what is copying even when information is a hundred percent available um, Chinese businesses innovate and make more of it um, than other countries. And I think it's really down to some key principles uh, of how they do that and how they do it differently. And we've talked about some of them already. Um, You've hinted at even just now, um, different perspective. Um, You know, I know in the tech world, people talk about fail forward, fail fast. You know, there's, there's that mantra. Um, Chinese companies, no pun intended. Build the car as they're driving it. Um, it all just happens real time. Um, it's not about you know conducting an experiment and waiting to see what works. It's literally about things happening you know in the moment. Um, if you look at companies like Xi'an, the the retail company, doesn't even uh, fast fashion doesn't even compete in China. Um, I was talking to a a nameless CEO in the U.S. of a rather large business. Um, And I was talking to him about Xi'an and fast fashion. And he says, oh, well, you know, uh, they have so many consumers in China. And, of course, a company like that would do well. And I said, I I think it's not even in China. It's based in China, and it's in the rest of the world. Um, And they're bigger than Zara and H&M combined. And he was floored, and he said, "Why haven't I heard of this this company?" And and you know they're doing things real time. They're making fashion to order. You know, you, whatever gets clicks on TikTok, they start producing. Um, it's very, it's like very of the moment, which is I think a a very temporal quality of Chinese businesses, like this responsiveness um, that uh, that people really miss, and that's something that. Speaking of copying, that perhaps the West West or other countries, Southeast Asia, Africa, other regions that are trying to grow, perhaps it's something they should copy.
0: We could do this forever now, <laughs> um, but I do want... <laughs> <laughs> I've got so many other points I want to make and things I want to talk about, but I I do want to bring it back to your book, and I do want to stay there. I think it's really important. Uh, I think a lot of this conversation, people can start to pick up what Mm. you've been putting down in that book, and that should be really exciting for people to go and get. What do you expect the major innovations to be to emerge from China in the next five to 10 years? And I'm going to constrain your answer Mm. and not allow you to mention AI 5g and now battery technology oh dear
1: okay so (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i think uh social commerce is going to be
0: uh, Mm, yes oh good call
1: it's huge in china um and it's being exported right now by virtue of tiktok um i mean my god if you look at If you look at Facebook shares and sort of its effectiveness as a marketing tool for a lot of a lot of companies that do use it in marketing, it's really diminishing, and TikTok's rising. And they're going to they are planning. They've announced they're planning to plug in social commerce globally. Um, So I think uh, social commerce will continue to grow in China, but that will be exported uh, to the rest of the world as well. So I would be watching extremely closely social commerce a lot. Of searches and, and the, this is part and parcel of that. A lot of ser- consumer searches now happen in app, not in search engine. So people are going to you know TikTok and Amazon globally to do searches, um, not not Google or, or Baidu as the case may be, or you know in, in China it's Douyin. Um, so Douyin, uh, you know, Little Red Book, uh, Xiaohongshu, all those social uh um platforms that have built on commerce it's growing exponentially but i think it's it's poised to explode explode and like really explode in china and then be exported to other countries um and i think that's going to be really interesting for a lot of countries that are perhaps in a more developing stage of e-commerce because it's going to enable them to leapfrog you know store like brands don't even necessarily, um, they brands and branded stores aren't as relevant as individual sellers and spokespeople, which gives, which breeds a whole new kind of economy for individuals in different countries to start their own small businesses and a whole new gig economy of entrepreneurs in places like India and Africa. So for me, um, social commerce is definitely a huge space to watch
0: for sure. I couldn't agree more. Again, there's a million things that I want to touch on and dive into in there, but I'm going to thank you for that. (laughs) And I will keep the conversation moving forward because I I do want to make sure that that I'm respectful of your time and I appreciate you being on the show so much. I wanted to go to one more thing uh, because we have so many brand owners, brand decision makers as a big part of the negotiation audience. So for them and for a lot of them that are, really kind of paying attention to what we're talking about as they pay attention to that area of the world as a potential next step for them. What lessons can they learn from China's culture of innovation?
1: I do believe some of the key lessons are, something we haven't already touched on, is um, the potential that exists in reverse innovation. So scaling back products and making them uh, accessible to consumers, so scaling back features, making them accessible to lower ends of the population. If we look at um, so, this is you know I've already talked about things like enabling uh, innovations in, in uh, execution and operations. You know, so so I won't retouch on those. But a new thought I'll bring to the table is that of reverse innovation. So one thing that China's done particularly well, and even Western companies in China, like GE, has done this exceptionally well in China, which is scale back. Um, some of their medical products uh, to make them more accessible to small clinics, you know, as opposed to like 50,000 US dollar pieces of equipment that exist in major hospitals. Um, But even companies like Xiaomi, which have made, you know, basically cell phones, but also the internet of things, the IoT uh, home devices, incredibly accessible. And I believe brand owners really need to be thinking in, in reverse, because I know from my experience at, at Unilever, a lot of what we've been focused on is up trading, right? We've been focused on up trading consumer to the next level premium offer. But I think what people are missing is the bulk of consumers uh, that sit at the bottom of the pyramid and there's gold in that bottom of the pyramid.
0: That's a very good point. And whereas margins might be lower, but... Market quantity might be bigger, you know, don't sleep on the data and the learning that can be mined and potentially be more usable with more data. And so there are some ancillary uh, benefits to existing in the lower end, um, less featured uh, market profiles, right?
1: To build on that, the interesting thing is it can open up new use cases. So This is not a Chinese company, but GE did um, reverse-innovate the EKG machine so that uh, hospitals in China and India could uh, afford it, smaller clinics, smaller hospitals, even doctor's offices. However, what that enabled was um, that same product to come back to Europe and, and North America and be installed in ambulances, which gave better, uh, you know, better treatment and better care to emergency patients because they could get the diagnostics they needed to make some quick decisions. So reverse innovation. Yes. The margins can be lower or, or, or not can be, they are lower. Um, but they, they can open up additional use cases and the more um, you know, developed markets or more affluent markets, um, which creates a whole new business potential. So I think that's why companies shouldn't be afraid of exploring that kind of innovation.
0: And for those who don't know this fall, look forward to Joanna Hutchins' next book, Don't Sleep on Smaller Margins. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see, is it possible even for China's pace of innovation to actually speed up over the next few years?
1: That's an interesting question. I, I would say probably. I think, um, the, te- the enabling technologies that we, um, you know, AI, generative AI, um, will enable them to ex, ex, will enable everybody if they use them, but is already enabling China to execute more quickly. Um, respond- like when I, cause, you know, I'm from a consumer background, so consumer responsiveness is really everything. Um, and so if you can respond real time to, uh you know uh, let's say it's raining outside which triggers a consumer to think about your particular kind of product and you can um produce let's say an asset on e-commerce that speaks to that need in that moment um you know i think real time marketing is going to become a thing and i and china's already starting to do that and will pioneer it which i believe will only continue to kind of um like a uh, So so like a virtuous circle start to, or a flywheel start to develop uh, an incredible amount of speed.
0: I wonder if there simply almost mathematically has to be a peak to how the velocity of innovation akin to, and maybe I I hope I'm drawing on my old physics (laughs) training successfully here in that part of the reason traveling at the speed of light was nearly impossible was because your mass would become infinite as you got close. And that inherently was the issue. And so I wonder if potentially China might run into that problem. The same way corporate innovation is almost an oxymoron in of itself. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I wonder if it's possible for China to kind of really max out.
1: Yeah, and I I probably for sure. Um but then I think that, you know, if you think about cycles of development, innovation cycles that um I imagine this would just start a new curve, a new innovation curve. So if you think about the, you know, the S curves and the cycle of innovation, I think uh yes, there'll be there you can reach a peak point of um this technology but that will just generate a new s curve on however that makes us as a society globally or in china smarter better you know more fit to compete
0: now i want to speak to the investors the entrepreneurs the innovators the capital allocators that listen to our podcast and full disclosure, we never give explicit investment advice, um, although we maybe have given implicit investment advice along the way. Do you maybe do you have two or three ways that maybe they can get involved to be able to ride the innovation wave in China that we have been rather embolding through this conversation or even particular trends that they can focus on that they may want to Be interested and maybe haven't heard of allocating, you know, some capital towards.
1: Yeah, I still think. I mean, you know, we've already talked about electric vehicles, and you know that that might be already not not priced at value. Maybe a
0: little room left.
1: Maybe a little room left. Um, But I think consumer products are really interesting. Um, You know, there's a case study in the book about which a lot of people have heard of uh, this company called Inky Forest that's given Coca-Cola a run for their money in china. um so there it's a soft drink company that um basically the guy came from gaming and started um uh, you know used all of his knowledge around you know gaming and data and consumer insight around a certain target audience to create a soft drink company. Now he had no particular interest in beverages. He just saw and I think this is I think this is the insight I'm pointing to which is um, I think his quote, if I'm not mistaken, was something like China doesn't need more platforms. It needs, um, there's no shortage of that and they're strong and they're good. These digital platforms, digital ecosystem, but what China needs is more exciting brands. And I think his insight about why he created that business is very true about the future potential of China consumer brands. So, um, you know, that brand in particular, and I like, I know you're I'm not giving investment advice to to invest in that brand at all but what I'm saying I think what they've done in the consumer product space disrupting huge incumbents international incumbents like Coca-Cola is super interesting and I think the consumer space is ripe for that if you look at uh, perfect diary that disrupted l'oréal um you know that I mean while they're not as strong as they used to be uh there are companies small up and coming companies which are poised to disrupt rather entrenched um consumer segments. And I think that's really worth a look is, which, uh, and that's what the Ginky Forest founder did. He looked at a segment that was relatively unchallenged and he decided on beverages, but they're going to be Chinese entrepreneurs taking their tech knowledge and moving it into sectors where the incumbents don't have technology. Like, you know, Coca-Cola is not fundamentally a tech company. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah. I think for me, that's a space that's interesting, um, Is you know, what can tech disrupt in the consumer segment? Um, and those are just a couple of examples um, that are sort of maybe the moments passed on those, but what are, the, what are the up and coming spaces in which that can
0: happen? I want to ask you to please now talk about where people can get the book, remind us what the title of the book is. And I know that we are recording this pre-launch, but mm-hmm. where do you know that it is going to be available? So tell everybody and here we go. Shameless plug. I want you to tell us everywhere <laughs> that we can get this book. Sure. So, the book is called China Fi
1: um, How China's Ahead in Innovation and How the Rest of the World Can Catch Up. And uh, my name is Joanna Hutchins. I'm the author. It will be available in Southeast Asia, UK, and US. Um, digital copies will be out in March on Kindle and Google Play. Um, It will be available in April uh, in physical hard copy in stores in Southeast Asia, uh, because the publisher, as I mentioned, is in Singapore. So it's being printed in this part of the world. And then it will trickle over to the US and the UK maybe a month or two later, and it will be available on Amazon.com or any place um, books are sold.
0: So talk to your friends that are based in Singapore, get yourself a copy of the book and beat everybody else to it. I love it. Joanna, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I think everybody needs to, to run out and and try to get that book. Uh, hopefully, we're going to release this just ahead of when people can actually do that. So Joanna Hutchins, ChinaFi, Why China is Leading in Innovation and How the Rest of the World Can Catch Up. Make sure you go find that. Kent, thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Todd. It's been great fun. and I've enjoyed sharing some ideas and perspectives with you
0: and we have enjoyed hearing them thank you so much for those of you watching the YouTube video don't forget that you can also listen to the podcast if you need your hands in your your eyes and uh, for other things and duties while while you want to enjoy this content please go uh make sure that you you find our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and everywhere else that you find podcasts and those of you listening to the podcast and want to see us live and watch and hear us at the same time don't forget you can go check out the YouTube channel on WPIC's website But for now, thank you all for listening. My name is Todd Embley, your host, and thank you all for tuning in to The Negotiation. See you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with.